So I remember the first time that I actually really became aware of the Beatles' existence. I might have known before this point that they were around, that they actually sort of walked the earth, but when I really became aware that they existed and that they were important, I was, um, we had a summer place on, on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and one of my friends, just a little bit down the, the beach road, was the youngest son of like eight kids, huge, classic Boston, Irish, Catholic family, and his eldest brother was like 22 or 25 years older than him. There was a huge gap between them. And this oldest brother was actually studying to be a priest, and he was on break at home from seminary. And my friend Rob and I were hanging out with him, and we were talking at one point when he was unpacking his bags, he took out a whole bunch of a uh, whole bunch of LPs. Y'all remember those, you know? Uh, and he took out a whole bunch of LPs, and on the cover of, of um, one of these LPs, there were all these, these these four guys sort of standing there, surrounded by a whole bunch of other people in sort of military regalia, but didn't look exactly like what I expected a uniform to look like. And I held it up, and I looked at it for a while, and thinking I was being a little bit of a smartass, uh, I said, you know, uh, hmm, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I said. Uh, Sergeant Pepper or Dr. Pepper? Which one is the highest rank? And his Irish eyes, the elder brother, were not smiling. Now, they weren't angry either, but he affixed me with this, not glare, but steely gaze. And he said, the Beatles are the most important band that ever was. You will come to know this. So Rob's brother... Wherever you are, maybe you're in a pulpit yourself this Sunday morning somewhere else. I agree. You were right. And that's why I'm using them for this message series. The goal of this message series is not necessarily for you to know more about the Beatles, although you probably will learn more about them. The goal is not that we should aspire to be the Beatles or be like the Beatles. The goal of this message series is not hero worship. The goal of this message series is that the Beatles in their fame, in their art, in their genius, and I use that word intentionally, each represent an aspect, a core different aspect of the soul, of being alive fully in this life. So as we look upon them, the goal is not just to look upon them and say, wow, they made some great music that I like, or, you know, hey, they're from a while ago, I don't really care. The goal is to look upon them and actually to look deeper into ourselves so that we might know our core life, the core expression of true self, in a deeper, more interesting, more fascinating way. I call the series Archetype of the Soul. Very simple definition. An archetype is a core model, a core example of what it means to be alive with depth and purpose. Now, there is no one single correct archetype. This one I'm not talking about today or the three that are coming after this or the many more archetypes that are not part of this series. There is no one single archetype, I believe, for even one person. You may find yourself headed towards an affinity with one archetype or the other of the ones I'm going to talk about. But it probably doesn't express all of you. Maybe just a core part, an important part of who you are. And the Beatles teach us this as well. For their archetypes, their genius was stronger together than it was apart. This is how archetypes and ways of being interact with each other. That they contain elements of one another and hold up and complement and complete. It is true of them and it is true of us. By knowing our core models and ways of being, we get to know our lives deeper, yes. But even more than that, we start to gain a little bit more insight into 
Why are we drawn to some other people and perhaps not drawn to a variety of others? By learning that depth inside of our lives, we get to know ourselves truly, not just unto ourselves, but in connection with the other lives that surround us. I start today with the image of Paul, the lover. The lover archetype which contains but is not exhausted by just that narrow concept of romance. The fully developed lover is a person who lives with empathy and compassion and care and also a commitment to serious playfulness, serious intentional playfulness in this life, that the world is a garden to savor and grow and cultivate and enjoy and share. The fully developed lover archetype exists in partnership in creation, with and alongside other beings, knowingly that the, lo- the lover only becomes themselves in relationship fully. And so it makes sense to start with Paul, even though, to be honest, he is the least compelling beetle to me, to start with Paul this morning, because for him, as an artist and as a person, partnership was core to who he was. Partners, the most famous songwriting duo, I think, that probably ever existed, Lennon-McCartney, and later with his wife, Linda Eastman, with whom he shared not just songwriting opportunities, but with whom he really shared his life. Now, we get to a core sense of what Paul and what the lover understands by true partnership, by understanding and listening to the words of John and Paul actually when they started to break up. They were talking about the White Album, which for me is my favorite Beatles album, my absolute favorite. And they're talking about the fact that at this point they were growing entirely apart and not to put anyone down by age. These are John Lennon's words, not mine. He said Paul started to make granny music. Actually, he called it a lot worse than that, but I'm not going to repeat it. They knew that their partnership was starting to erode, but they had very different interpretations of what this meant. Lennon, reflecting on the recording after the fact of the White Album, said, it's like if you took each track off of it and made it either all mine or all Paul's, just me in a backing group, and just Paul in a backing group, that was all right, and I enjoyed it. We broke up then. For Paul, who had a deeper experience of the meaning of partnership, very much sounding like the lover, actually for him this was not positive. He recalled the sessions that led to the breakup of the band. He said, up to that point, the world that wanted so much of us as Beatles. It was the world that was the problem. But we weren't the problem. The sense of belonging, the sense of belonging to the Beatles, belonging to each other, that was the best thing about the group. This is how a true lover expresses themselves in real relationship. Now, along with that sense of partnership, the lover also knows something else as well, which is a real sense of intentional playfulness, the joy of creation for creation's sake. All that sort of innovation that if you know the history of the Beatles came about in sort of their second half of their recording career, it actually started as John started to lose interest. He was there for the rest of the band. He made some, for my opinion, incredible songs, but it was Paul who drove the innovation He wanted to see what they could do together in the studio. As John stepped out, Paul stepped up. 
And I'd like to think of the relationship that Paul had with one of his great fellow 60s rock icons and pop romantics, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. Brian Wilson, for years it was reported, was working on an album called Smile. Any of you know your rock history? Now, eventually this album came out, but it only came out like eight years ago. Brian Wilson was working on Smile, working on Smile, and working on Smile. It was going to be his pop, epic, teenage romance masterpiece, he said. And then he listened to the recording of Strawberry Fields Forever from the same session that gave us Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and he couldn't record Smile anymore. Because what he had wanted to do, Paul and the Beatles had already done. Paul, through his lover archetype and his energy to create, really did move the band beyond what anyone else had done at this point, not just because of technical proficiency and not just because he wanted to sound strange or new, but because his heart called him to create. This joyful creativity was part of Paul from the first moment that anyone saw him as part of the Beatles. It was central to his appeal. He was the quote-unquote non-threatening one. And if you remember when you first were introduced to them, he was the cute one. John was the smart one. George, the quiet one. And Ringo, the goofy or the funny one. Each different archetypes the minute they were introduced to the public. Paul had this amazing gift to capture the joy and the graceful bliss falling in love. From my experience, someone who met his true love online, I don't think I've ever heard truer songs in, truer words in a song than I've just seen a face. I mean, I think about these words and literally think, had it been another day, I might have looked another way. But had I never been aware, and as it is, I dream of her tonight. I've just seen a face. That plays so true to my experience. Now, at the same time that Paul had this amazing gift for talking about that joy of falling in love, at the same time, there was a shadow side there. And there is a shadow side in every archetype and very much part of the lover archetype, which is that for many of us, not for all of us, but for many of us, sometimes it's not the falling in love that's the problem. It's the being in relationship that takes the hard work. I think of actually what our teens are doing right now, not here at Wellsprings, but actually in our office. They're doing a curriculum right now called Our Whole Lives for 7th to ninth graders who are engaging not just sort of in the nuts and bolts of the fact that, you know, they're becoming sexual creatures, but understanding their whole lives so they can relate to another person, however they choose to or are called to, with the whole of their selves, body and mind and spirit and soul, all of that together. That is what mature relationship means. Sometimes Paul was thought of that he only talked about the easy stuff. John Lennon once, who frankly is not all that nice to Paul, especially after they broke up, they'd have these long rambling conversations. Paul very often, as the lover does, sort of initiating the call. And once John Lennon was fed up with him and said, you are all pizza and fairy tales. You're just all the easy stuff about love. And I have to tell you, when I first met Paul McCartney in the early 1980s, when I became aware of him, it was ebony and ivory. It was, don't you want to fill the world with silly love songs? 
What's wrong with that? I'd like to know. And I thought, maybe they had something there in the late 60s with all that Paul is dead mythology. Because <laughs> if that guy here doesn't seem at all like that guy who was there, the innovator, maybe he really did die. This is the shadow side of the lover archetype. And I know this within myself very much. I've had to pay attention to this as I have journeyed deeper into this life. The shadow side is sentimentality. That love can be reduced simply to a positive feeling or to feeling good about falling in love or to fall in love with that high of beholding how another person might desire you. That's that sentimentality that is all hearts and flowers. Here we can take a page from Buddhism that talks about in analyzing what they call the four limitless qualities in Buddhism. They talk about the far enemy and the near enemy. The far enemy of something like love, well, is hatred or outright indifference. But it's the near enemy that most often trips us up when we're working with the energy most naturally to us. The near enemy of love is reducing it to that sweet, saccharine quality that is supposed to feel good all the time. And the minute it stops feeling good, we question whether the love is real. That's the shadow side of the lover. But I do not think, ultimately, that Paul is a lightweight. I think he shed something deeper and truer and real about love. I think he understands what the writer Thomas More wrote in his book, Care of the Soul. He said, care of the soul requires, requires an openness to love's many forms. It requires an openness to love, especially in love's disappointments. Part of the full side of being a true lover is also recognizing the pain of what happens when love fails. Paul gave voice to this and rendered heartbreak and heartache beautifully in his words. You know, the single most recorded song of all time is Paul's? Yesterday. There are more recordings of that song than any other. And that song is all about the nostalgia that any of us might feel that comes in heartbreak. The nostalgia of yearning for yesterday, long ago when things were perfect or good, seeking to escape from the pain. That song has been recorded so many times because it's a nearly universal experience. For me, Paul expressed this depth of the pain of what happens when love in many dimensions fails. Three songs. Any of you remember For No One from Revolver? It is the most devastating breakup song I've ever heard. It renders the end of a relationship in the same way that people teach Latin as a dead language. (laughs) That the words remain, but they have lost all meaning and reference to life. But Paul did not stop there just by focusing on when love fails in romance. Any of you who've ever had difficult relationships with your parents or have difficult relationships with your kids might recognize some of the meaning from She's Leaving Home from Sgt. Pepper's. That moment when parental love fails and the child has to leave home, as it says in the song, in the middle of the night and their parents are left thinking, what did we do wrong? We gave everything that we could and still it wasn't enough. Still the child left home and it was a painful parting. And then in even a deeper dimension in that, down at the level of the soul, the religious dimension of life, That's what Eleanor Rigby is about. Father Mackenzie writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. 
And that final stark, sad moment by Eleanor Rigby's gravesite. No one was saved. The true lover can recognize when hearts break. Indeed, must recognize when hearts break. And love in its many dimensions and many guises does not fulfill its promises. Now, of course, the song we just sang is about the kind of love, that deep and soulful love, that can fulfill its promises. The Mother Mary, by the way, in the song that we just sang, that could also be, you know, this is the way poets work. (laughs) One word has many different references. It could be Mother Mary from his own Catholic tradition that he grew up in. But probably it's also his own Mother Mary. It was one of the first things that united John Lennon and Paul McCartney together as they both had the experience of losing their mothers in their teenage years very suddenly, very painfully. Although the interpretation of that is quite different, we'll get into what John Lennon did or didn't do with his own grief next week. Let It Be is about that capacity within our souls and within our universe when perhaps our own human love fails to experience and to welcome a kind of transcendent love that can lift us up if we will remain open to it. Paul did not express his spiritual turmoil as openly as John did, nor did he express his spiritual yearning as deeply as George did. He practiced meditation intermittently throughout the years. He left that yoga retreat, that famous yoga retreat with the Maharishi Yogi in 1967 pretty early. John and George stays after him. Ringo, being Ringo, as we'll find out in a few weeks, had no time for it whatsoever. But it's interesting, in his latter years as an activist, as someone who expressed care for what he understood as all of creation, actually wrote a letter, an open letter, to the Dalai Lama, very upset that the Dalai Lama was still eating meat. As he was a committed vegetarian, Paul was, he wrote in his letter respectfully, he said to the Dalai Lama, the head of Tibetan Buddhism, forgive me for pointing this out, but if you eat animals, then there is some suffering somewhere along the line. This is what the mature lover tries to understand, tries to have a life that is responsive to another creature's suffering. The song that we're going to sing in just a little bit is Hey Jude. It was written for Julian Lennon, John and Cynthia Lennon's child. John, who after the divorce and his remarriage to Yoko Ono, did not see his child for over five years. Basically just abandoned him. But Paul, perhaps almost like an uncle, tried to step into the breach and said, Kid, life is hurting you right now. Do not harden your heart in response. It's the fool who plays it cool. Do not harden your heart in response to your own heart being broken. Keep your heart open. This is what the true lover tries to practice. And I love this image. This image of the last time, the last moment when Paul McCartney were ever on this earth, Paul McCartney was ever on this earth together with George Harrison, who, by the way, had a really sort of unpleasant relationship with. I think John sort of overshadowed Paul and the way it works in family systems and family theory is that very often the sibling who is overcome or overshadowed by another person, well, they just dump on the one lower than them. Paul did that to George too often. One recording engineer who worked with the Beatles for many years of their recording career, he said, in Paul's eyes, George could not do any good Ever. 
They had a conflicted relationship. And I forgive Paul for these words, for his stupid lapse into kind of a machismo to say, I'm still tough here, because the image speaks for itself and it doesn't need any silliness or backtracking from it. In talking about the last time that he was ever with George Harrison in this life, he said, we just sat there stroking each other's hands. And this is a guy, and you know you don't stroke hands with guys. But you know, it was just beautiful. We just spent a couple of hours like that. And it was really lovely. And it's like that was a favorite memory of mine in this life. I love at the end of their life together. Referring and thinking back on, of course, one of their first songs, their first major hits. And what a different interpretation of, I want to hold your hand, it is. Beyond that initial thrill of the romance, or the getting to know each other, or that creating a song for the first time. It is simply two old friends holding hands when there's no more songs to be sung and there are no more words to be said and all that we have to give to another person is our sheer presence. Ours holding hands saying one final time, I love you. And that brings me to Paul's second great partner, not nearly quite the songwriting partnership that Lennon McCartney was, but a better life, life partnership. Linda Eastman, Linda McCartney. In the over 30 years that they knew each other and were married to each other, they spent one night apart. One night apart from each other. And they didn't even choose to do that. Most of us know that Linda died a very young death in her late 50s of cancer. Paul was there with her every step of the way, walking that walk as much as we can with another person. By her side, these were the final words that he said to her in the ranch in Tucson. You're up on your beautiful Appaloosa stallion. It's a fine spring day. We're riding through the woods. The bluebells are all out, and the sky is clear blue. And then she was gone. The true lover with his true love, all the way up until the end, as far as love would carry them. It makes me think of one of my favorite clips from a movie that about a decade so ago won an Academy Award. It's from Goodwill Hunting, and just to set this clip up a little bit, this is Robin Williams, who's sitting and talking with the main character, Will Hunting, played by Matt Damon. And Matt Damon, in the movie, is an absolute genius. His brilliance is excelled, but his heart, because he has been so hurt, has been entirely hardened. And so the first time that he meets Robin Williams' character, his therapist-to-be, he lashes out, using his razor-like intellect to take down Robin Williams' character, exploiting the weaknesses, exploiting the vulnerabilities, and no one has seen Robin Williams, who has shuddered his own heart because of his own grief. He says it kept him up all night. And then the next time they see each other, they go out and they sit in the Boston Garden together. And this is what we hear. Out of Boston. Nope. 
If I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo. I know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientation, the whole works, right? I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling. Seen that. If I ask you about women, you'd probably give me a silver, say your personal favorites. You may have even been laid a few times. But you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. You're a tough kid. I ask you about war, you'd probably uh, throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends. You've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap and watch him gasp his last breath looking to you for help. I ask you about love. Probably quote me a sonnet. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. Known someone that could level you with her eyes. Feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you rescue you from the depths of hell and you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel to have that love for her be there forever through anything through cancer and you wouldn't know about sleeping sitting up in a hospital room for two months holding her hand because the doctors could see in your eyes that the terms visiting hours don't apply to you you don't know about real loss because that only occurs when you love something more than you love yourself. I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. This is love defined by its limits. The most full place where the lover knows him or herself is when the lover knows that what they love is real. Not an image not an ideal, not the young version, not the pure version, not the perfect version, but the real version. The smell in the Sistine Chapel, not the abstraction on the battlefield, but the friend's death. Not just young love or falling in love, but sickness and death all the way until love ends as real as real can get. Kind of like the Velveteen Rabbit, if you remember that. Velveteen Rabbit, who at one point was pure and pristine out of the box, and all his fur was in the right place. And then says, it's when you get older, and you start to lose an ear, and the fur starts to be rubbed down. That's when you truly can be loved because then you're real ultimately Paul sang it and he knew it best the perfect epitaph for the most famous band that ever was an even better and fuller expression of this life and how we live it 
and how we love it and also how we leave it. Simply put, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Amen. Thank you, Brother Paul. May you all live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of love, whose depth of being is revealed not in the ideal of love, but in its practice. Not in the perfection of love, but in its call to follow. May we follow its call in our of our lives. In our relationships of sustenance and depth, may we be deep and may we be sustaining. In our relationships, may we go deeper than simply that moment of the high or the moment when it feels right. May we know and may we trust that the archetype and the fullness of being a lover in this life is to know and to love the real. To know and to love the messiness of this life. To know and to love its complexity. To see it in ourselves. To see it in another person. To see it in many other beings. And so by seeing it, we commit ourselves to the path of care, compassion, empathy. May we, in becoming real and true lovers, know that our hands are necessary. Our hearts are necessary. That we are called more than anything else to show up in this life. To be there. To say not just I love you. But to let that be the expression that stands at the very center of who we are. Amen.